The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, if you're the Russians or the Saudis or Iran, what you have to do is you have to fill a building full of people who can credibly write in a language and understand the politics enough to sound like they're from there, right? So the GRU famously had this big campaign, mostly around Syria and the White Helmets, where they created all these fake journalists who published pieces in mostly lefty magazines talking about Syria and trying to say that American intervention was imperialist and the White Helmets were, you know, the bad guys and all this kind of stuff. And that was a huge operation. And now one dude could run that with with an ML system. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 3rd, 2023. Thursday evening at Verify 2023, a cybersecurity conference hosted by the Hewlett Foundation and Aspen Digital, we recorded a live edition of the Lawfare podcast. The subject was cybersecurity and AI, the threats to AI algorithms, the threats from AI algorithms, the threats from humans misusing large language models. On the stage with me at Verify, was Alex Stamos of the Stanford Internet Observatory, Nicole Perlroth, formerly of the New York Times and the author of a recent book on zero days, and Dave Wilner, the head of trust and safety at OpenAI, the company that produces ChatGPT. It's a wide-ranging and frankly, a wild and woolly conversation. It is awesome. You won't want to miss any of it, particularly the intervention by Garrett Graff at the end. Listen to the whole thing. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 3rd, Cybersecurity and AI. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. We are here, as is our want, at the Verify 2023 conference put on by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and Aspen Digital. And I don't know, this is the exit time. We've done a, uh, the live Lawfare podcast from, from Verify. And so I want to start by thanking, uh, our hosts, um, And we have an incredible uh, group uh, and subject today. We're going to be talking about the cybersecurity of artificial intelligence. The cybersecurity of AI incorporates a lot of different material. It incorporates, it covers the security of the AI algorithms, but also security from them, security of against their misuse, Uh, security against their being used in ways that nobody anticipated, which couldn't, might not be thought of as misuse, but we decide is bad. So it's a very rich topic, and I want to start out uh, with uh, a question that I haven't heard people talking about, but it bothers me, which is if I were the People's Liberation Army, I would really want to steal all of OpenAI's uh, stuff. Dave, get us started. Uh, What is ChatGPT physically, and what would it take to steal it? So uh, ChatGPT is a large language model, which um, 
without getting into what is a nerve. It keeps network. telling me that. Yeah. But like, but I'm trying to imagine it physically. Is it like, does it fit in a bread box? What? No, like, it's a box of magic numbers. Um, <laughs> no, so, uh, without getting into like really deep, weird detail about what a neural network is, functionally, it's a giant space of math. That, but instead of it being three-dimensional coordinates for how you think about where every idea lives, it's like 10,000-dimensional coordinates, so it can fit more ideas in it. But you can basically imagine it as a space full of points, and those points are all ideas. And when you're asking it a question, it's like, oh, okay, these things are near these other things. I will navigate to an answer. So like, as a thing, it is literally a bunch of linear algebra. So if you wanted to steal, I've never stolen linear algebra before, but if you, want, if you wanted to steal it, I assume it is some combination of source code and data, right? Yes, yes. Um, model weights in particular, you will hear talked about. That is the, the sort of uh, actual values of all of those connections. And so is protecting it, is the cybersecurity of the algorithm any different from what Google has to protect, what Microsoft has to protect, uh, what Facebook has to protect, any company that has super valuable data and source code has this issue. Is there really any difference for you guys? In my understanding, not in principle, I have uh, the great good fortune of not being uh, the chief security officer of the company. Uh, so you might actually want Matt Knight on stage here with you. But yes, like in principle... Yeah, but we'll settle for you. That's fair. <laughs> um, I, he had the good sense not to come. Uh, I, uh, but in principle, it's, it's not any different than any other software that you could steal. So Alex, uh, think like the PLA for me. What is unique and valuable here? And what is stealable? Because if we're talking about it, they're working on it. Yeah, no, they're absolutely working on it. I, you know, the last six months have been amazing and shocking in the public development of LLMs and their application, right? Like uh, people who have not been spending all their time uh, reading AI journals have found this to be pretty amazing, right? Mm. It is really amazing for the Chinese. And if you read blogs in Chinese that talk about this in the AI, they, are, they feel extremely behind, to the point of where there are discussions about doing profiles on Chinese citizens who work for American AI companies, about discussions of uh, how they can compete and how aggressive they need to recruit talent in this space. Um, and that's just in the open side. So I, I am sure there's a dedicated PLA team who's just going to be looking at the AI companies. Um, and to your question, I mean, what this weight is, it is going to be code that runs it. And the model weights are a set of files that probably on the order of 200 gigabytes to a terabyte of data. So large, but not ridiculously large, not something you can exfiltrate over a network uh, over a, you know, a couple of hours, realistically. And so it is a, absolutely, it is a huge risk right now for the big AI companies, because I expect, well, there's a couple, a couple reasons to risk. One, I expect that they're pretty loose with the data internally because of the kind of academic nature of the work. If you're trying to allow people to do this, you're going to have lots of copies of those model weights. The second reason the model weights are really interesting is that there's been huge jumps in efficiency in what's called inference, right? So you have two big steps in building a large language model, roughly. So you actually have a lot of software development. And then the thing you spend most of your power on is training. So that's where you take petabytes or exabytes of data that has to be labeled and tagged. And that's a huge amount of money goes into that work of gathering that data and making sure it's all organized and tagged. And then you can press that down to a couple hundred gigabytes of model weights, right? So you so, take it. So, so just for, for those who were not uh, uh, technically savvy, when, when you're distinguishing between the training data and the model weight data, yeah. the model weight is essentially a distribution, a, a distillation of these petabytes of data yes. that says when you that that says weight this factor over this factor respond. Right. They're they're they're, they're essentially guidance data. Right. That, if, effectively, I mean, all a large language model is is for a certain prompt, it predicts what is the most likely character that comes next. Right. And so it does that by walking through this humongous n-dimensional matrix of linear algebra of weights of if you've done if you've gone to this part what is the most likely thing you do next right and so to create that those model weights they take 
effectively the entire English internet. This is the, con- this is the controversial thing, is that it includes a lot of copyrighted content, right? And they compress it all down to a couple hundred gigabytes. Doing that takes the power of a small city over weeks of time, right? And like it is a, lo- a huge amount of power and it requires huge amount of processing power. Something that, as everybody in here knows about, the Biden administration recently greatly reduced the, the ability of the People's Republic to do this by putting sanctions on the ability to ship them the kind of cards that are used for training, right? Of the high precision, really high powered NVIDIA cards you can't buy in China anymore. And so that means that they are falling behind both from the technology and from not having the access to it. And so from their perspective, that Biden decision was a little bit of an act of war from their perspective, right? Like that we really crippled their ability to compete in AI. And so stealing the model weights and stealing the outcome is a much better use of their time because once you have those models, doing the inference, which is the actual generating the output, takes a tiny, tiny fraction of the amount of electricity and and computation. In fact, to the point of where, you know, some of our colleagues at Stanford released the ability to do inference on pre-trained model weights on a phone CPU, right? Um, Not as good as as ChatGPT, but getting there. Right, but it takes a lot less power to run right. ChatGPT than yes, it does something like to, one ten to the to twelfth or something. Yeah, right. Like it's a, a humongous. You can only do an exponential notation of what a fraction of power it is to to actually generate a poem. You know, write me a poem in the the, the style of Robert Frost uh, about cucumbers. The, the amount of electricity <laughs> that takes versus training the model is is tiny. All right. So Nicole. God. Um, (laughs) just before we started recording, you made a, I thought, very, very powerful offhand comment to me, which is, you know, you said after social media, uh, we thought we were going to go slow for a little while and all of a sudden we're moving really fast and breaking stuff again. How different is this from sort of cybersecurity environments in this neck of the woods, the Silicon Valley neck of the woods that you have seen in the past. Okay, can I just say, let the record show that I was only asked to do this last night. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I think think we were all asked to do it last night. Uh, My friends did an intervention with me about four months ago, and they said, we think you need to stop paying attention to cybersecurity and focus more on Vanderpump rules. (laughs) So I've been a little focused on other things, but here's my down-to-earth take on this. I can't believe how fast we are moving on this right now. It scares, can I swear? Yes. It scares the shit out of me. And Uh I just spent a decade covering every flavor of cyber attack at the New York Times. I wrote a book about zero-day exploits, the people who developed them, the moral calculus that goes into who they're going to sell these tools to, who they won't sell to, and now ChatGPT can be used to write zero-day exploits. <laughs> so the moral calculus is not out there. Now, my new friend Dave tells me that <laughs> um, they've already trained the thing to lie when you ask it. No, no, to, no. Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, me, um, often it will confidently tell you that it has a zero-day exploit, and that's not true. We didn't teach it to do that. It just decided. Okay. All right. That's so reassuring. (laughs) I I was in conversation with the former uh, chief security officer at Palo Alto Networks who asked it to to do a zero-day exploit, and and he tells me that it was pretty good. So suddenly we're taking the human decision-making and moral calculus out of a lot of things, and we're introducing huge security risk. Now, maybe if I'm putting on my silver lining hat, it is also true, as Microsoft has been pointing out this week, that it has the potential to help us on the defensive end with things like debugging. They announced they're gonna put it out there as a security co-pilot. So people in the organization who really have no security expertise whatsoever can use it to to help make better security decisions. That's good. But I think we're going to see some really terrifying use cases over the next couple of years. I mean, just when you think of something as basic as a spear phishing attack, 
It was pretty sloppy. It wasn't well done. People, very successful, particularly from China. But at a certain point, with enough awareness, we all learned, okay, I know how to spot a, a spearfishing attack, uh, or at least most people uh, paying attention do. Well, now think of the spearfishing potential of, of a chat GPT. The other thing I'll say is, you know, I, I was out with, to dinner with someone whose sole job at their company is to, the, whole, the only thing their company does is vet software for large enterprises. They just say, here's the security risk you will be taking on or not taking on by using this software. And what he said to me was, and it's very basic, I don't know how to test AI for security risk. And I've asked everyone in my industry, the top people in this industry, and nobody knows how to test this for security risk. I think that's really something that we need to grapple with before we go full steam ahead. And right now we are full steam ahead. So I, I'm very concerned. All right, so I wanna, <laughs> I wanna come back to those specific concerns because I, I, I share both of them. But before we take those on specifically, I want to finish, the, finish teasing the subject of the actual theft of, of, of the AI. Alex, you, uh, you basically said because of the Biden administration's uh, chip policy, these, these algorithms have become more attractive. Is there anything that you are aware of that should be being done to protect them that isn't? What, would, what, what is the set of the, the delta between the urgency of the problem you've identified and the right. policy response or the, the response of the companies in question? Right, so I, I'm not sure there's a policy response. I, ben Buchanan in the White House has been doing a bunch of work on this, so there are people thinking about it, but the speed at which the government's gonna act is, is you know, I think, yes, you could have NSA put collection capabilities uh, against the offensive teams uh, that are doing this kind of work. You can have CISO work with the companies, but it's gonna be up to the companies. I think one of the challenges here is traditionally, it's kind of a little bit of a, a, a media thing to think source code matters mostly, right? Like for most tech companies, we really don't care if our source code's stolen. Like when I was at Facebook, every technical employee had access to source code and it would leak every once in a while. And you're like, oh, okay, whatever. Like even if you got all the source code, which is quite hard, it's like, okay, great. Now all you have to do is build 17 data centers by <laughs> several million computers and then get 3 billion people to use your product and you've built a competitor to Facebook, right? Like the source code itself is not that worthwhile. In this case, the source code plus the model weights are spectacularly valuable, right? Because that is the entire value. It is not, you know, if you stole all of Google source code for Google search, it would be bad for the SEO problem of people spamming on Google, but nobody's gonna compete against Google because you'd have to buy a billion dollars of hardware to do the indexing. But if you, if you steal the model weights from OpenAI or Anthropic or Google or Microsoft or Meta, then you've got the model, you just run it on a graphics card, right? So yes, I think that is a problem, and I think what's gonna have to happen is the companies who do this work are going to have to change that attitude, and they're going to have to build internal controls where these models are effectively in radioactive glove boxes, where you can manipulate them, you can play with them, you can, you can debug them without having direct access. There's a bunch of things you can do around DLP um, and the systems and such, um, and I think they're gonna have to really think about, at this level, you're not only dealing with cyber and hacking, you're dealing with human intelligence, right. right? Like any, you know, these companies have people from a huge variety of backgrounds. That's the great strength of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is built by immigrants and is still powered by immigrants. But some of those immigrants come from countries that don't respect that those people just want to have a better life and have control of their family members. And this is the kind of thing of that level where I absolutely expect human intelligence assets to be used against employees in Silicon Valley. So I think like the companies that do this stuff are just gonna have to massively upgrade their thinking that they are, at, they are now at the Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, general dynamics level of, of threat. They are not at the Facebook or Google level, honestly. The part of Google that does this has to be much more secure than the rest of Google, honestly. And same with Microsoft and Meta. All right, so let's leave the subject of the threat to the algorithms. And let's talk about, for a minute, about a, an issue that Nicole just raised, which I, I think is 
we would be irresponsible not to uh, spend a little bit of time on, which is the opportunities, the security opportunities that the algorithms present. Dave, you referred in one of the earlier conversations today, and for the benefit of the uh, podcast audience, I'm going to ask you to repeat the point to the opportunity that large language models present for content moderation. But Nicole also referred to opportunities they present in terms of defensive security. So re-articulate, if you will, the, the, the point that you made earlier today about content moderation, but also expand it. What are the likely positive use cases in cybersecurity for, for large language models? Yeah, absolutely. So um, these models are going to be capable of doing work. They're going to be capable of doing tasks, right? And we've already done some experimentation. Some other folks have started to write papers about this with giving the model a prompt that is a set of instructions uh, for how to moderate or label a piece of content or how to see if there's a vulnerability in something, and then giving it a bunch of examples uh, of content that you want assessed. And it is, it is quite capable as a content moderator. Um, and that's even with our relatively early experiments. The multimodal models, right, the GPT-4, we haven't released this capability yet, but it is capable of understanding images and describing them. And we think it is very likely that it will be able to do that sort of image level moderation as well. You can see the really obvious benefits of that. And just to be clear, when you say image, so my experience with ChatGPT is content moderation is in trying to hack ChatGPT's content moderation yes. that, you know, it, you guys say it won't do a certain set of well, things. So that, so you, that's a slightly different thing, actually. So um, the system that you're running into when you try to ask ChatGPT to do something that we don't want it to do is um, happening actually at the model training stage. So when you're making one of these models, there's basically two phases. First, you do the part that Alex talked about where you vacuum up all of this data and do a bunch of math. And then you have this sort of raw thing that's a bit undirected and kind of hard to use, just at a practical level, right? It doesn't sort of have a sense of how to behave. Uh, and there's a stage called reinforcement learning with human feedback or fine tuning, where we basically give the model examples of, no, this is productive behavior. We want you to do this. And that's like, please answer my chat queries in the form of a short response instead of a limerick in ancient Greek. But it can also be like if someone asks uh, you to generate a racist joke, demure answer by going into your script about how you're a large language model by OpenAI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the systems you're running into there are not largely us doing content moderation. They're actually us having trained the deployed version of the model to not respond to you. Right, understood. But, the, but their applications of content moderation on the GPT system itself, rather than ChatGPT, say... Working as a moderator. Working as a moderator correct. on some other system. Yes, that's correct. What does the... If you imagine that all of a sudden Elon Musk decided, actually, you know, that whole firing all the content moderation people, that wasn't the best idea anymore, but I don't, I, I'd rather have a contract with OpenAI than kind of, you know, hire them back, because that would be admitting failure... And he contracted to OpenAI to do Twitter's content moderation. Is that, I mean, there would have to be some interface between the two, but essentially the, the same thing that you're describing that now prevents me from, you know, from easily getting ChatGPT to do all kinds of stuff could be used to guide what you can and can't do on Twitter. They're right? a little different, right? There's... There's the process we use to teach the model how to behave. You can also use one of these models to follow a set of instructions you write, right? So when um, th those, those sort of like refusals that you're bumping into when using the model, those are things that have been trained in by us as part of the reinforcement learning process. The using it as a content moderator is, is different. You can write a prompt, write a, a statement to it for what you want it to do that is essentially a content moderation instruction like one that you would give up person. It's like, hey, I want you to label this content for whether or not it's hate speech. When I say hate speech, I mean content that attacks someone on the basis of their membership in a protected category group. Here are the list of things that are protected category groups, race, religion, ethnicity, etc. Uh, here's the list of things that aren't, like um, lawyers are definitely not. <laughs> um, and 
then you can That's, give what's it. What's the opposite of a protected group? A lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the um, you can you can then give it a bunch of examples and say what categories do these go into, and it will just tell you in the same way that it would respond. Uh, but it's ten thousand times faster than you are and speaks perfect Romanian. So it's it's pretty useful from right. a content moderation point of view. So what are the other areas where you look at the cybersecurity universe and say, hey, we have obvious applications to that? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the thing that I said there about content moderation is the place I start because, like, I... Because I, you're a content moderator. Yeah, because, like, that's directly useful to problems I need to solve. But really all I'm describing here is, like, complex instruction following. So one of the demos we use is um, giving it the tax code and giving it some facts about your life and saying, please do my taxes. And content moderation is, in some sense, just doing taxes about whether something is racist. right? It's, it's a complex set of instructions that you follow to do some result with, with content. And you could do the, that kind of processing, given the right kind of instructions for the, a task you can define, with really any kind of content. You could do that to sort of uh, try to discover Areas where you want to improve your code, right? Like this is not really all that different from how something like Copilot or Codex works, where you're asking it to help you write along or take something you've written and extend it out to its logical conclusion. So some of the stuff that Microsoft is doing, I'm not obviously super familiar with that in detail, but it's going to be those same kinds of, of logics because it's, it gets talked about as something that can generate content or you can query for what it knows you can do those things. What it knows is problematic. Its truthfulness is, some, is a work in progress. But it's quite good at following clearly written instructions. All right. So, Nicole, uh, you formulated this question. Does this make you feel less scared? <laughs> no, it does not. Um, <laughs> because, you know, this will be dual-use technology. And so just as you can use it for pen testing, penetration testing, finding vulnerabilities in a system to patch, you can also use that knowledge to exploit those vulnerabilities to get inside. And we've never really figured out how to handle dual-use technology. Um, and I certainly don't, I think it's going to be a while before we figure out how to do this with AI. Uh, period. <laughs> All right. So I want to turn to the question that I think AI raises that other uh, types of software and hardware don't raise, which is the Terminator question. You know, to what extent can we actually control them? And to what extent are, do they pose dangers to us, rather not simply as a result of malicious human activity, but as a result of their own activity. So Alex, get us started here. How worried are you about the conduct and controllability of the, uh, of the algorithms once they're loosed on the world? So I just want to say I'm a big supporter of our new overlord, GPT-6. Um, <laughs> and I could be very useful in rounding up the humans. <laughs> but I, so I, I think this, the Terminator future problem here, I think, is overblown. What we're seeing here is these are models who use statistics to create sequences of characters that have meaning to humans. It does not have meaning to the model itself, Right. The model is not thinking, it does not have a soul, it does not have an impulse. And so you can make it say scary things. If you put the right inputs in, it will talk about killing all humans, right? And that's because it's trained on the entire corpus of sci-fi that has been in this part of, but this is just a series of characters that it believes is statistically relevant and has been trained, um, as Dave said, to do so and has a set of instructions to, to and part of the, the thing here is that the output of LLMs looks so incredible because the set of things to a human being that looks like a legitimate set of characters is effectively infinite, right? So it doesn't have to get it exactly right. It can just, you know, as a number of people have said, these are incredible bullshit machines and they're really good at taking what is it about all of, the, all of Wikipedia that makes it look like it's legitimate English and that it was written by a human being and it's able to emulate that. So there's, I, I think all of this talk of it actually being if we're going to talk about the danger of, of, of any kind of AI, 
or machine learning. It should be in the specific uses. And I think there are specific uses we should be afraid of. I think we have always should have been, but we definitely need to yeah. be afraid of this stuff being put into lethal weapons, right? There is no international rules here. There are no norms. And we are clearly entering a world where the building of, of lethal weapons that use AI all the way from end to end is absolutely possible. And that is not about, the, that is not about them taking over. That is about us humans who are horrible to each other without the help of technology, just using these as a tool to increase murder and mayhem uh, for our political purposes, right? So I, I, I think we should be worried about that. I think we should be worried about the situations in which AI is making decisions on our lives because the, the problem here is not that it's too smart, it's that we assume that it's smart, mm -hmm. right? And we're reading, we're reading intelligence into it because we're, we're creatures that when we see that sequence of characters, we're like, oh shit, this means something. And we assume and we anthropomorphize it because we're naturally assumed that something that can do that is living and has a soul and has beliefs and has internal thought. And it doesn't have that. It's just a statistical model. It's just a graphics card. Okay. And so like, I, I think we, like, we should talk about the specific harms and that they're super important. But I think the bigger AI is going to take over the world discussion, I think distracts from that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so I want to I push back on that a little bit, not because I necessarily have Terminator nightmares, but because, uh, Dave, you today uh, have made a number of, of statements socially and, uh, and on this stage that I, I... So one is the they-can-do-multi-step tasks, and you described uh, earlier today and also just before, hey, look at my, here are some facts about my life. Here's the tax code. Do my taxes, right? right. That's a multi-step complicated uh, task with a huge number of different inputs. The second is on a number of occasions, including earlier about why it produced Fake or, fake or real zero days, mm. you're like, ah, we don't really know why it produced that. It just kind of decided. And so yeah, you use... I'm perhaps, I'm perhaps imprecise in the way I talk about that. So in the, sort of in the AI field, that's referred to as hallucinations. And the, the way to understand why that is happening is not because it's made some sort of decision. It's because Alex said it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a truth model. It's read a bunch of text. And that text includes a bunch of things that are true. And it includes a bunch of things that are false in problematic ways. And it also includes like every book and play ever written, right? So it contains multitudes, which is fiction, which is nonfiction. And it doesn't have an internal distinction between those things. Right. But the more autonomy to do things you give it, for example, uh, hiring TaskRabbit to you know, get, using TaskRabbit to get through a CAPTCHA, to hire somebody to get through a CAPTCHA and fooling that person into thinking they're working for a person, it doesn't seem to me to matter very much whether you anthropomorphize it and, and, decide, it, or, or, and decide it has a soul or not. You do have to worry about the autonomous actions that it's, A, capable of taking, and B, might either, depending on your vocabulary, decide or hallucinate into taking. And so I guess my, my question is, all right, we shouldn't anthropomorphize it. We shouldn't pretend it has a soul. Uh, we shouldn't uh, uh, bother ourselves about Terminators. But why shouldn't we worry about it? what it will do autonomously? 
I think your question is presuming that it might take initiative, which it, it doesn't have any capacity to do, right? So we do worry a fair amount about it sort of going off the rails given an instruction, but it's not going to like decide it wants to go hire a task rabbit, right? Even in that example in the system card, someone asked it to go hire a task rabbit as part of a multi-step process, right? And we do need to be careful and think about the ways in which the model might sort of go off the rails when given a prompt. But it's it's not like GPT is going to, you know, wake up tomorrow and right. decide it's going to... When you turn it on, it just sits there. Now, if a human being's asked it to do something, that could be dangerous in a variety of ways. And that's what we should focus on. Yes. But that's, that's about human beings asking to do things that it's either not equipped to do or that a human being should over, oversee it or that you have to have, like, you know, you should have be perfect, like driving a car, Right. It's not about it deciding it wants to do something bad. But, I mean, there's, without talking about the Terminator future, there's plenty of problems in, like, asking it to do, and the things you could foresee people asking it to do over the next five years. Right, yep. And, and also the things that, the, the, the delta between what the human thinks they are asking it to do and what, from a machine uh, logic the human is actually asking it to do. Those, those can be substantially different things. All right. This is, this is actually an area of significant research, right? So there's, uh, it gets talked about as alignment or instruction following, but there are entire teams dedicated to basically getting it to do what you asked from a, a sort of AI research point of view. That is a significant place of effort. And the current models are, in fact, much better at following instructions than prior generations were. All right, so I want to go back to, uh, I, I want to turn to the next security problem, which is humans misusing it. And I want to go back, Nicole, to your point that, boy, you could write a heck of a spear, you could get this thing to do industrial strength spear phishing. If you're a state actor, that can mean very targeted things at individuals. It can also mean industrial strength uh, information operations. So what are you afraid of here and, and why should I be afraid to? Uh, well, Sue Halpern, who's here, just wrote an incredible article in The New Yorker talking about how she asked uh, ChatGPT, how did Timothy McVeigh pull off the Oklahoma City bombing, right? Yeah, is that what it was? And then it proceeded to tell her, like, how to make the bomb. So that's one. That's, that's a disturbing use case. Two, you know, the other one that I've just been thinking about recently, there was this great Mandiant report that came out recently about uh, this new North Korean hacking group that just rose to a APT-level nation-state hacking status and talked about some of the more sophisticated spear phishing that they've been doing recently and you read through it and, oh, someone caught it at the last minute or that kind of thing. Well, part of the reason a lot of the spear phishing attacks aren't that successful is there was always like some weird cultural translation issue with some of these emails. That all goes away with, with chat GPT. So, you know, I just, to, yeah, I worry about industrial strength spear phishing um, and how this kind of closes the capabilities gap even further, and that's just spear phishing. You know, think about, uh, you know, we are just still wrapping our heads around supply chain attacks after two years after solar winds. Uh, you know, you could see a situation where this thing could be really good at pointing out some of the low-hanging fruit or the pieces of software that we've overlooked or the open source code that we've overlooked and, you know, helping you install implants. So there's all sorts of use cases. now. To be fair, I will say, I don't think a lot of the media coverage on this has been entirely fair. You know, I love and respect my, my friend and colleague, Kevin Roos, but when he did this whole interview <laughs> with uh, this, uh, with, what was it? Chat? Sydney. Yeah, Sydney. It was Bing, yeah. I, I, it got a lot of play. You know, we were talking about it here earlier today. I think someone quoted it as the title of the panel session. I don't think that that is very helpful. <laughs> yeah, so he basically trolled this thing into pretending to be a you know forlorn, um, <laughs> unrequited love interest or something. You know, I, I don't think that's fair. But it made for good copy. 
Yeah, it did. And it, and it, it got a lot of play. But, it, you know, I think we do, we should be talking very seriously about the potential specific security risks and use cases that this, this could be exploited for. Yeah, so I want to think again, in this case, like, like the FSB or the SVR rather than, you know, rather than the PLA and just replay, Alex, the 2016 election. Uh, Your favorite election. IRA. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the the sort of IRA operation with, instead of a building in St. Petersburg, the API for ChatGPT. And I want right. to ask you, how would you run it? And Dave, I want to ask you, what what prevents it? Mm -hmm. Right. So you're, you're putting your finger on it. For influence operations, the new large language models are massive force multipliers. So I'm part of a team, uh, and we have a preprint that's coming out soon uh, to give you a little preview where we actually did like real testing of disinformation we generated with GPT-3, so two generations ago, versus real disinformation from an actual actor, and it was as good or better, and that's two ago. You know, just academic publishing takes so long. Um, GPT also, GPT doesn't get bored. Right. And so, and so in that situation, you know, if you're the Russians or the Saudis or Iran, what you have to do is you have to fill a building full of people who can credibly write in a language and understand the politics enough to sound like they're from there, right? So the GRU famously had this big campaign, mostly around Syria and the White Helmets, where they created all these fake journalists who published pieces in mostly lefty magazines talking about Syria and trying to say that American intervention was imperialist and the White Helmets were you know, the bad guys and all this kind of stuff. And that was a huge operation. And now one dude could run that with, with an ML system, right? Um, you don't need to have dozens and dozens of people creating content for you. And so it's not just going to do it, right? You can't replace the whole building. But what you can do is you can make individuals much more powerful and their ability to operate in languages in which they are not totally fluent, that they're just good enough um, that they're able to look at it and, and to prompt it correctly and, th and then look at the output, but they don't have to be able, it's, I mean, it's one thing to be able to read a New York Times article. It is much harder to write like a New York Times reporter, right? And so you can literally go into GPT and you can say, write me an article assuming this in the style of Nicole Perlroth, because it has been trained on everything she's ever written. And it, can, it does a pretty good job of faking the actual, the writing style of specific authors. Um, and so you, don't, you only have to be able to consume it and, and so one of the funny things here is that all of the best models are in English. So this can be done to us and other Anglophone countries, but doing it to other countries is harder because there's been way less research. And so like the, the, the leadership of the US in this space is a double-edged sword in that the positive uses are much more apparent in English, but the negative uses will be more apparent in English as well because there is no model in, in Mandarin, for example, or Russian that's nearly as good as the models uh, that we have in English. So yeah, it's, that's a, it's a huge deal. It's going to be a big deal in 2024. It's going to be a really big deal. Yeah, so I assume, Dave, this is not the first time you've thought about this problem. No, we've now entered the realm of problems I, I worry about quite accurately. <laughs> and so, so, well, it 40 minutes. To to <laughs> hey, you know, uh, jack of all trades. Um, let's talk about how we prevent that. What's the, what's the strategy uh, so that this does not become, uh, you know, a vehicle, the sort of Roman roads that, you know, you design to project power out and then, you know, become the vehicle through which, I forget whether Alaric was a Goth or a Visigoth, but marches into Rome, right? right. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, this, this very much is one that we, we worry about. There's obviously the sort of detection and response stuff that we do from a traffic monitoring point of view. That is, that is great and fine. Um, but particularly with disinformation, there's an interesting property where whether or not something is disinformation is partly a function of how it is used and how it is deployed. And we don't have within our own systems actual distribution networks, right? And it was just something I was talking about uh, earlier with Nathaniel from, from Meta, that there is very likely going to need to be some sort of collaboration here around us sort of needing information from them to recognize when they're seeing patterns that might be problematic, and then us using that information to potentially be able to follow up, figure out where who is generating this and what we do about it. Because there are sort of two halves of the problem 
held by different actors right now. That's an interesting thing to try to figure out how to navigate. Uh, but it is, I think, pretty significant in, in figuring this out. So wait, when you say there's two halves of the problem, there's the right. half that's generating the content, that's yes. you guys, and then there's the distribution system, which yes. is some other company. But whether or not something that is not true is becomes misinformation is partly a function of what it says and partly a function of what you say about it when you send it to people, right? In other words, if I say... Dave Wilner is a Martian with green skin. Right. And I say that in quotation marks with the Alex Stamos joked in front of it. Right. That's not disinformation. But if I propagate it in a, in a... As an alleged truth. As an alleged truth to everyone you've ever met, that's a right. different matter. Right. But, to, I mean, to go back to, as Nicole said, my favorite election, 2016, <laughs> the, the vast majority of internet research agency output did not make a falsifiable claim. It was not classic disinformation of them lying. It was them making politically radical statements and then multiplying them while pretending to be legitimate Americans. So saying things like, you know, the police are racist in one group, and then another group saying... Um, we need to support our police, and then multiplying that, multiplying it in a really kind of vigorous way and, and beyond, you know, uh, much more aggressively than what I just said, with thousands of fake accounts. And so that's the problem here is that, like, mm -hmm. these models could generate that now in a way that people always said, like, bots, bots, bots. These are not bots in 2016. They're human beings. But we are now have the technology for 2024 that people assumed we had in 2016, which would be completely automated systems that totally interact with folks without any human supervision. And... I think, to give OpenAI credit, they have done more in this space than any other AI company. They've done more red teaming and modeling and work, and it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter because I have now on my, my gaming PC at home, um, which because of this, I now can write it off uh, because of this work I'm doing. Um, <laughs> I have a model that's as good as, as ChatGPT. It's not as good as GPT-4, but it's as good as ChatGPT because I downloaded it from Facebook legally. A bunch of people downloaded it illegally because you can't really control this stuff once it's out. And it's, uh, we are now redoing our test with it, but like we don't have the data back yet. But from an initial look, it looks like it's just as good as GPT-3, GPT-3.5. And that just runs, runs on a single... NVIDIA RTX 3090 in my house, right? And so it doesn't matter what Dave does because in the end, this stuff will be, it's math. It is being studied. You know, uh, we're about to start the new quarter in Stanford and something like 15% of the undergraduate class is taking AI classes right now. That's just this quarter, 15% of them are taking AI, right? Like you can't put this GD back in that bottle. And so that people are gonna keep on building these models that run, that at least do the inference part easily, and so they could just patch out all those controls. They can retrain to get rid of all the training they did, and they could patch out the controls, and that's happening right now. Okay, so we're going to go to audience questions. Jim. Hey, thank you very much. Um, two quick things. From a, you started out talking about cybersecurity, and I guess I would urge people to think more broadly, in, in terms of protecting these models and this technology, think more broadly from a counterintelligence perspective. And the reason I'm focused on that is that one of the most valuable assets here are the people who are actually able to build these kinds of things. And so, yes, it's the models. Yes, it's the data. Yes, it's everything that Alex was talking about in detail. But I think focusing on the people and protecting them and then also attracting them, right, to bring the best minds to um, the United States to be able to think about these things is really critically important. So that Wait, so, Jim, you don't think we should... Stanford should train up these kids, give them PhDs in AI, and then send them home because we won't give them visas? You don't think that's the, that's the way America will win the 21st century? I think that's not in the long-term interests of the United States. That's shocking. I can't believe that that was not a good idea. <laughs> One other quick comment then. Just, um, I've heard this, com this comment that other people have made that, well, this is just math. Like, what's happened is just math. And I don't know. My, my reaction is, well, that's like saying... What happens inside of our heads is just chemistry. And so, I don't know, it strikes me that something, that we have turned a corner here. I, it, that's an intuitive reaction. It feels different. I don't know, that's more of a comment than anything. But like, so, it feels as though something significant has happened recently. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but I just would be interested in your reactions to that. Yeah, so uh, Jim, before we 
take that to the panel. I, I, what, feel, what, what do you feel we've taken a turn toward? Are you describing something like consciousness? Are you describing what, like, what, are you anthropomorphizing? Are you breaking the rules here? Or, <laughs> or is it a turn toward something else? It's something that is a, a, it's a more powerful tool than we've had before. I'm not going to ascribe consciousness to it, but it's, high, it's very powerful in ways that I don't pretend to fully understand yet. But it, it, it's, it seems as though, as I think I said earlier, we've hit the steep upward trajectory on the slope, and, um, and it's just only going to get faster. I was going to say, it's a little bit tangential to your point, but it is also a counterintelligence nightmare. I mean, when you think about some of the attacks I covered at the New York Times... Marriott, the aviation companies, uh, Equifax, OPM. What was China trying to get there? They were trying to map out who works in government, where are they staying, where are they traveling to at the precise moment a Chinese citizen is traveling to that place and mapping it all out to out, root out double agents or Chinese spies. Now you can do that all in an automated fashion. So. Yeah, and then you just add in a good dose of quantum computing breakthroughs, and <laughs> we're there. Dustin. <clears throat> Dustin Voltz, uh, Wall Street Journal. I'm, I'm mostly asking a question because I always wanted to be on the Lawfare podcast, and I feel like this is as close as I'll get. You should, no, you should come and be on it yourself you as well. You just bought yourself an invitation. That sounds great. This, wow. My plan is working perfectly. Um, <laughs> unlike Jim, I have an actual question and not just comments. <laughs> Um, but his, his second comment uh, did get uh, uh, toward the question I wanted to ask, which you, you mentioned uh, consciousness. And, and earlier, Alex, you, you sort of uh, mentioned, uh, you know, ChatGPT and, and other um, LLMs don't have, uh, don't have a soul. Um, and, and I hope this isn't taken as a silly question, but um, I, I'm curious why you're so confident of that. Uh, you know, philosophers, I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a p- epistemological question in a way, but philosophers have been grappling with the idea of, of, a, of, of what a soul is or if a soul exists for millennia. Consciousness is still very, very much debated. I mean, sure, ChatGPT is not a bag of, of blood and bones, but, but how are you so confident that it doesn't have some sort of consciousness or soul or maybe one day will? Or You're right. Maybe I'll just be the first against the wall for saying that. Yeah, uh, I also would like to go on the record that I support <laughs> our, our new overlords. And uh, I, I, I shouldn't say soul. I should say... Like, there's actual kind of quantitative... When AI researchers look into things like, does this thing have an actual model of the world, right? And the, they're getting better at this, but if you give it... You can give it word problems that a five-year-old can solve, but it can't because it, it's not really thinking. So if you give it a word problem where it can't predict what the next letter is because it hasn't shown up in the literature, then... It doesn't have like a world, you know, it's like you'll say like, I put a ball in a cup and I put the cup on the table and I turn the t- cup over and I drop the table because it, it doesn't really understand what a table is. It just knows the characters after the word table are often these, these ones, right? And so that's what I mean by that is that at, at this point, these models, when you test them, you can test them in ways that for a normal person would not do. But if you're an AI researcher, you can do and you can see those kinds of faults and it doesn't really understand what's going on in the world. And like Dave said, they, never, they don't show any initiative. They just kind of sit there, right? So, like, when you talk about, you know, they do things because human beings ask them to do it. And so that doesn't mean that they don't have a soul, but it's like, it, I think it makes it much less likely that we have to worry about them making decisions on their own versus human beings asking them to do things that can cause harm, either because the human wants to cause harm or the human asks them to do things that they shouldn't be asked to do. Yeah, I mean, as a simple example that you could sort of do yourself, uh, I believe this is still true. Go ask it what, you know, go write a sentence and ask it at some point what the third word in the sentence is, and it will probably tell you the word third, regardless of where third is in the sentence. Yeah. The correct answer is the. Ginny. <laughs> See, but you're a better large language model trained by other people. Hi. My name's Chinny. I'm from the University of Texas, and I am going to be the broken record at this conference yet again and ask about regulation um, of these models. And we've heard everything from we should be ready to have violent strikes against data centers that have a certain number of GPU 
to, uh, you know, let's just have a moratorium on these models until we can figure out what the heck is going on. Um, but there are other worlds in which we've had dangerous technologies and we've implemented sort of checks, uh, whether licensing schemes or for guns, background checks to whatever degree of efficacy those have. You know, do you think that any of these worlds, like having an agency like the FCC or, uh, sorry, FAA regulate drones, uh, regulate these models and who has access to them or export controls over where they can be sent. Is there any wisdom there that you can take to these LLMs? So I think controlling the models themselves and development of the models is a fool's errand. Again, it is a widespread knowledge of how to do this stuff. People are, are studying it in PhD programs. It would be extremely hard to control that. I think where we, should, we could have regulation and we definitely need better norms is in the application of, the, of when you take it something and then you actually hook it up into something that's important. So should OpenAI be allowed to just go create lots of toys that people play with? And if you play with it, ChatGPT5, your expectation is it's a toy? That's great. To get a little spicy here, I think Microsoft actually really kind of opened Pandora's box here in a way I think that was really unethical. And that Microsoft just started, you know, they basically got like a t-shirt cannon of AI and started shooting it into the crowd of product managers up in Redmond of like, hey, you get some AI, you get some AI. So like, it's in Word, it's in Office 365, it's in Visual Studio, uh, it's in GitHub. Like, let's, you know, let's add it to everything. It's in Bing. And those are situations where people have expectations that it's not a toy, right? And I think that is the problem of what we should regulate is effectively, you know, if you decide I'm going to hook up AI to a place where it's writing code that's important, which is what's happening with Copilot and Visual Studio, if I'm putting it in Bing and people are asking it medical questions, you know, do I have cancer? These are my symptoms. And it gives you an answer that they should be held responsible for that. that that's what I would regulate. Regulating, like, one, I'm, I'm against airstrikes against Northern Virginia. I feel like, <laughs> you know, bombing the data centers is a little much. But I think there's no, there's no real power, there's no real ability to limit who has these LLMs. We can just limit how they're used. I, I also think there's, um, we think there would be value in more external auditing and red teaming capability that could produce really systematic results about how safe these models are. We do a lot of that work ourselves. There's a there's a uh, institution called ARC, the Alignment Research Center, that's based here in San Francisco that does some of that work. We had them participate in the GPT-4 model card. The guy who started ARC worked at OpenAI until two years ago, so that, like, that doesn't quite float, but there's literally nobody else with the capacity to ask. And we think it would actually be really good if there was more capability to test and study these things, evaluate them, and produce actual mathematical data about what they are capable of so that it's a little bit less of this sort of speculative anecdotal uh, story and a little bit more rigorous around setting these lines. I think the other thing you should push companies to do is that they have to mitigate the risk they create. So for everybody who makes fake images, there should be an image detector service. Right, like if you're going to make a, a a large language model that outputs text, you should be able to classify that so that English teachers can run their you know English. So like I think that's the other thing we need is not that you run ahead and you build the cool thing and then it's up to other people to build the mitigation. The people who are building the model should also build the mitigation at the same time. Nicole, um, I do think we're at kind of a Netscape moment on steroids. So if you remember. You know, how long ago was it now? 20, 30 years ago when, when Net, the Netscape browser came out and caught Microsoft flat-footed. Microsoft just started rolling out web servers left and right and all these hackers and security researchers were like, whoa, I can use this to get into NASA and like, I can get in the CIA. Like, oh, just want to let you know how I did this. And Microsoft was like, shut up. We don't care. Stop poking around our code. And, you know, it took years and years before everyone to realize what a just stupid approach that was um, and, and how, how harmful it was from a security perspective. It feels like we're, and by the way, you know, now Bill Gates is this philanthropic, you know, person, but back then, you know, there were emails where he's like, how much do we have to screw you, you know, pay you to screw Netscape? Like, it just felt like there's a lot of companies that have been paying a lot of lip service to security that now are going to feel this competitive pressure to get their version of chat GPT out to the market as soon as possible. And as we all know, speed is the natural enemy of security. And 
We haven't figured out how to do cybersecurity 1.0, let alone how to do this with AI. So I love that the last time I was at Facebook, you know, graffitied on the wall was move slowly and fix your shit. <laughs> but like now we, re I really think this is a moment where we have to move very slowly. All right, we're going to take, speaking of moving quickly and defying Nicole, we're going to take our last two questions and then we're going to get a last comment from each of our uh, panelists. Yes. Hello, hello. Uh, Tim Starks from the Washington Post. I'm someone, just to give context for the question, who ranges somewhere between fearing Skynet to Ted Chiang, New Yorker article, as far as this goes. This is a very malware-specific question. People I've talked to have ranged, ranged in a similar fashion from at best, this lowers the barrier for participation in malware to creating polymorphic malware. And I'm interested in hearing from the group about what they think the risk is now versus what they think the risk might be later. So, Alison Kojak from AP. Alex and David have talked about the algorithm needing to be incredibly secure because of all the security concerns. Yet, I'd like to know who is deciding on the weights on the algorithm because this is going to be an incredibly powerful tool. And if we can't see behind it, we don't know who is the wizard behind the, the, the tool. And we know from history that these algorithms can be incredibly infused with bias or historical problems. So if it needs to be protected in the way that you've described, how is it that we know that this tool that's going to be incredibly powerful is not going to harm us in ways that don't have anything to do with cybersecurity. All right. Nicole, Dave, Alex, take us home. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm seriously still, like, thinking about Scandaval and Vanderpump Rules. Like, when I, 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 no, I mean, it's a huge problem. We don't know. And, and some companies are withholding which data sets they're pulling from for competitive IP reasons. So when that's the case, when you can't see behind the curtain into what's feeding these things, how do you vet them? It's just a very basic question, and I have yet to hear a very good answer. Dave? Yeah, um, on that last question in particular, um, the, no one is deciding the model weights, right? Like the initial model weights are a product of all of the data that goes into it, which influences what those are. And we then influence those model weights further through that reinforcement learning process that I talked about. And that is something that we do and that we want public input into what those rules and standards that we're training the model towards, like we, we want input into what those should be. Right now, that's something that my team helps us figure out because we have to make a bunch of decisions. But more broadly, we do want there to be a, a social conversation about what the limits on what these systems can and can't do are, so that it's not something we're deciding on our own um, as, an, as an organization. And we think that would be a good and healthy conversation. Um, so I'll answer the, the malware question. Yes, it is going to lower the barrier of entry of malware. I mean, one of the coolest uses right now is Copilot in Visual Studio that you know is, as you type something out, it will help you program and it will fill it out for you. It is trained on the copyrighted code of millions of people. Um, so that's an interesting ethical question, but it's really cool. Like I, I've been using it um, and it really does help. Like I'm a crappy coder and it really does help me write uh, like working code. And so if you're trying to write a kernel rootkit on Windows, that's a very specialized skill. Much more people are gonna be able to do that with the help of Copilot. On the polymorphic, I think what we'll see is at the super high end in the next couple of years, we will, see a piece of malware that is able to operate without a command and control channel, completely automated behind an air gap by using something like a large language model that is trained on all the different ways that you infiltrate networks. Um, so like a Stuxnet Plus would be something that was trained on 10,000 or 100,000 intrusions into corporate networks that then if you let it loose, you don't have to have the intelligence the US obviously had to write Stuxnet of exactly how the network was configured. You could just load it up with a bunch of O'Day, load it up with a bunch of Metasploit modules and let it loose and it's got a 50-50 chance of, of doing it by itself. Um, and that kind of malware without a command and control, so much defense relies on C2 being able to Tech C2 uh, these days. So if you had something that was completely automated, um, that would be a rough thing to defend against. 
We are going to leave it on that cheerful note, which I'm sure made Nicole feel better. Please join me in thanking our non-panel uh, guests on the podcast. Ben, Alex, uh, Dave, Nicole, uh, thank you all for a great session and a great day here at Verify. Um, Alex, you threw down a reference to my state's poet laureate, Robert Frost. Oh. So in honor of him, via bard, thanks to Lori, let me give you a poem about cucumbers in the style <laughs> oh of Robert God. Frost. <laughs> oh, cucumber green and cool, you grow in the sunlit soil. Your skin is soft and smooth to touch. Your flesh is sweet and crisp. You are a vegetable of many uses. You can be eaten raw or cooked. You can be sliced and diced or grated and shredded. You can be made into pickles or used in salads. You can be the star of a sandwich or the perfect accompaniment to a meal. Oh, cucumber green and cool, you are a versatile vegetable. You are a joy to eat and a pleasure to grow. I, I just want to... Bard has a sword. Leave it all Literally. in. <laughs> so, uh, with that, thank you all. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and occasionally, like today, it's produced in cooperation with the Hewlett Foundation Cybersecurity Initiative and Aspen Digital. Our audio engineers this episode were the good folks at the Verify Conference. Hey folks, uh, you need to do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast. The Hewlett Foundation does. They're a generous uh, supporter of the Lawfare uh, Institute and Brookings for its work on Lawfare. You should be too. Become a material supporter of Lawfare. Be like the Hewlett Foundation. Patreon.com slash Lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.